Right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. I am very excited to be here with you. So this is the launch of a brand new series, Overcoming Folly. And in this series, we're going to ask the simple question. If we're so smart, why do we do such silly things? It's a very simple question, right? And it gets to the core, it gets to the core of the human condition. If we are so smart... Why do we do such foolish things? I'm going to get back to that question soon. But first, I need to tell you that today is a very special day. On the Jewish calendar, today is the fifth day of the month of Tevet. And the fifth of Tevet is a special day on the Chabad calendar in that it's the International Day of Jewish Books. I'll say that again. It is the International Jewish Day of Books. It's a day to study Jewish books, to purchase Jewish books, because this, on this day, um, let's see, how many decades ago? In 1987, I believe, there was a big court case in New York. Federal court ruled that the Chabad Library indeed belongs to the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Chabad Rebbe, and to Chabad as an organization. And that was uh, very complicated as to what was, at the, what was the core of the dispute. But the bottom line is, I'm giving you the, uh, the end, the end of, of the story, is that the library was returned back to Chabad auspices, a big library that was collected for hundreds of years by the Rebbe's of Chabad. And ever since, it's been a day of celebration of books and learning and Jewish books. And it's a wonderful day to purchase Books, Jewish books. I have a recommendation. If you're looking for a recommendation, don't worry. I'm not going to recommend my, my own books, although you can certainly do that. But I actually have a book that I want to recommend, which some of you may have or may know about, but maybe not. And so I figured it's, uh, it's a really cool thing to share. So it's called Daily Wisdom. Have you ever seen this? Daily Wisdom? So I see some of you may, uh, perhaps have. Okay, Daily Wisdom. Ah, look at this. Karen, you've got a copy. Excellent. So Daily Wisdom is a book that has insights on the Torah portion for every single day of the year. So whatever day it is, you can open this up as long as you know what Torah portion it is and as long as you know what day of the week it is, right? Because every Torah portion is divided into seven readings, which correspond to Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Shabbat of that week. So... As long as you know which Torah portion is being read that week, and as long as you know what day of the week it is, which you should definitely know. I'm just saying, I'm just going to put that out there. So if you know that, then you just open it up and you browse to the page. It looks like this. You know, each day has one of these pages. So sometimes it's kind of short, a little bit longer, but it'll take you a few minutes to read and it will pack a wallop. Why am I recommending this? Because it's a, it's a fairly new book. And it's Torah study, and it's Jewish mysticism, and it's the Rebbe's insights, and it's, it's really nice. And it's got a beautiful cover. And it has a seal that says, Benjamin Franklin Award, gold winner. You see that? It even won an award. Best coffee. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. For Independent Book Publishers Association. Okay, so that is that. That's a recommendation, but you can buy whatever books you, you'd like on whatever websites you'd like, uh, but make sure that they're Jewish and they're somehow related to Torah or Kabbalah or something Jewish related. All right, 
So it is very appropriate then that we're, stu- that we're starting a new book today, Overcoming Folly. It makes sense to start a new book on a day dedicated to books. And it's not just starting a new book, it's starting a new text. At the core of this text is the question that I posed before, which I said we'd get back to, which we are getting back to, which is, if we are so smart, then why do we do such foolish things? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. Right out of the gate, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is, because we're so smart, we do... Hey, Ali Solish. How's it going? Good morning, buddy. So because... Yeah, they went to Cheder. Because... Mm-hmm. Upstairs. In, like, mommy's bed. Okay, because... Because we are so smart, that's exactly why we do foolish things. So let me, let me give you a, a bit of a context on this. You know, animals are... Yeah. No, you can't. So you have animals, other forms of life. You know what? Let's, let's, let's leave animals out of the discussion for a moment. A tree. Yeah? You got a tree in your yard. Mazel tov. I have, for some of you, I don't know how at this point you don't know, but I have a peach tree in my, which is very appropriate for Atlanta, Georgia. We have a peach tree in our front yard. Okay? So does, do peach trees make mistakes? Do they do foolish things? What's the answer to that? Of course not. Of course not. Why not? Someone be brave and unmute yourself and tell me, why don't peach trees make mistakes? They don't know the difference between good and bad. What kind of mistake are they going to make? <laughs> right? What does it mean that they're going to make a mistake? It almost doesn't make sense that they could even possibly make a mistake. I mean, does a rock make a mistake? You have a rock sitting there on, uh, you know, it, it, outside, on the side of the road, there's a rock, a boulder. Yeah, it's making mistakes? Of course not. Do animals make mistakes? Miscalculations, maybe. But mistakes on the level of human beings, no. The reason why human beings make mistakes is because of the same the same tool that is our greatest ally is our greatest enemy. That's the point. The mind, which is our greatest ally, it allows us to be thinking and be creative and accomplish the most wonderful things. Also, at the same time, allows us to make the worst mistakes and to justify ourselves for our mistakes and to tell ourselves, makes sense. So I'll give you an example. Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany. The Germans were some of the most intelligent, sophisticated, well-educated folks around at the time. And yet, they came up with a campaign to extinguish the lives of millions and millions of people. And the question that people often wonder is, well, how could people that were so smart do something so depraved? And the answer is very simple. It doesn't take away the horror, but the answer is very simple. It's because the mind can justify just about about everything and anything. Right? The mind can justify a campaign 
to, to extinguish, to exterminate millions and millions of human lives. And you think to yourself, well, how is that possible? It's possible. The human mind is so smart. The human mind is so clever. The human mind is so bright that there's no limit to what it can justify through its mental contortions. There's no limit to what it can explain and justify and rationalize away. And this is the, at the heart of this discourse, Overcoming Folly. At the heart of this text is this simple question, if we're so smart, why do we do such foolish things? And the answer is, because we're so smart, we can do such foolish things. The answer is, because of our minds, we have the ability to look at a situation, to look at a choice of action, to recognize on one level that it makes no sense on one level, it's destructive, maybe it's self-destructive, maybe it's destructive to another, God forbid. Either way, it's God forbid, right? Self or, or other destructive. And we can look at it and we know it's wrong and we know it's bad and we know it's no good and we know it's harmful and we know it's destructive. And we can tell ourselves, but here's why it makes sense. Here's why right now for me or for you or for this or for that or for this reason or the other, this is why it makes sense. You and I have the power to use our mind as a tool for self-destructive and other destructive behavior. Thus is the power of the mind. So when we think about the human condition, and we think about what is unique about the human condition, and we think about the intelligence, the mind, we typically think of it as solely an asset, as an ally to positive choices and good decisions. Kabbalah explains, and Kabbalah is just revealing the truth of who we are. Kabbalah says, be very careful, because the same asset, the same ally, the same mind could also be your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy. The same mind that could take you to the greatest heights can take you down to the greatest depths. I would ask you to raise your hand, but I already know the answer, right? Who of us has ever in our lives had, had a, a faced a situation where we knew something was not a good thing to do, but we did it anyway? And not only did we do it, but we, don't worry, it's okay. Even without left, raising your hand, I know you're raising your hand, right? I know in, in your head you're raising your hand, right? We knew it was a bad, bad idea. We knew it was a bad choice. We did it anyway, but not only did we just do it, we rationalized why we're doing it, even though we knew that it's not good. I mean, have we ever done that? Are you kidding me? Ever? Have we done it in the last 15 minutes? Possibly. I mean, seriously, right? We're doing this all the time. So this text that we're studying is an incredible mashup, like, right, convergence, converging of Kabbalah and psychology. This is an incredible deep dive into the human psyche to understand what makes us tick, how do we think, and this text will serve to call us out on our erroneous, it's not erroneous, on our foolish justifications and rationalizations. In other words, when we tell ourselves, you know what, actually I think that this book will say, are you serious? You really want to do that? Think about how you're thinking 
and catch yourself mid-process to recognize that this indeed is not in our better interests, let alone our higher interests. This thing is not a good thing. So to this end, this text will explore a number, a very large number of rationalizations, or put differently, stories we like to tell ourselves. The stories we tell ourselves. Oh, well, because of X, Y, and Z, I deserve, you know, A, B, C, and therefore, even though, that's only one form of story, of narrative that we tell ourselves. But we have dozens at our disposal that we pull out um, as the occasion warrants. This text will go through one after the other, the stories that we tell ourselves the rationalizations that we, that we do to get ourselves in negative situations. The entire aim of this text is to understand a little bit better how we think, why we think the way we think, and to help us climb out of those self-destructive thought patterns that so often keep us tied down. Does this introduction make sense? Are you getting a sense of what this book is about? Yes? Okay, so again, the core is that our minds are the greatest tools that we have, but it could also be the greatest enemy. This book is going to tell us how to catch ourselves as we realize that we're using our mind in a very unhealthy way and to help us climb out of that using Kabbalah. Now, this is a very, very large text. Usually the texts that we study are I mean, the last one we did was, was also pretty, a pretty decent size. Um, but this, this book, I think I showed it to you last week. This is a very thick text. Very thick text, many hundreds of pages. There are, I mean, the book is over 400 pages, um, about close to... Just a little under 300 pages of actual... Kabbalah text, which is it's a very, very, very large text. But here's the amazing thing. It's written in such a clear fashion. It's written in such a lucid, in such a lucid manner. And although it's talking about, as I mentioned a moment ago, as I mentioned in this intro, although it's talking about the, the stories we tell ourselves to get ourselves into trouble, in the process of exploring that topic, it brings in almost every major Kabbalistic idea that you ever would need to study. In other words, we're, gonna, we're focusing on a specific topic, which is going to have a range of related topics in it. But as we go through these topics, you're going to get pretty much a best of, of all the Kabbalistic topics you need in your tool belt. So there's a lot of things that this study series is going to do. It's going to give us insight into the human condition. It's going to give us insight into the Kabbalistic take on psychology, on the psyche. And it's going to give us insights into how to get ourselves out of negative thought patterns. Plus, we're going to get all of this Kabbalistic wisdom um, in an orderly fashion, in a way that's immediately understandable and relevant to our lives. In other words, this is a great text to study. I'm super excited to start it, and uh, I'd love to, uh, I, I can't wait to get started on the journey. So without further ado, we're going to jump right in. The way we're going to do this, again, 
is I am going to share my screen. I like doing this, that way I know that we're literally all on the same page. I hope you can see my screen as I share it. If not, check the chat. You know what? Let me just make sure that those that joined after I posted it can see it. I'll do it again. Boom. I just posted again the link. You can find an official publisher um, approved scan of this text at the link that I sent. You can read it online through that link. You can even download the PDF. I'm going to share the PDF with you on my screen, but if you want it for reference or on your own device, that's the link where you can get it. At some point, I'll actually speak with my folks at the, uh, the publisher in Brooklyn, Cobb Publication Society, and ask them what the plan is as far as reprinting it. If I get any intel on that, if I find out that it is available, I will let you all know ASAP. Or as soon as I get that information. Okay. Everybody with me so far? Yes? All right. Hey, Danielle. Good to see you. Okay. Let's see. Who... Um, Let's walk, make sure we welcomed everybody. So Fran, Matt, Alex, um, Karen, I think everybody else we mentioned. Okay, Max and Joy, good to see you guys. All right, let's jump in, sharing screen. Oops, wrong screen. Let's get this going. Here we go. This course one, now you should know the way this, this is structured is there are 20, 28 discourses. Each one comprised of one, two, three, or four chapters. It's, it's very, very well organized. As far as Kabbalistic texts go, it's extremely organized. The origins, one, one more piece of intro before we jump in. The origins of this text dates back to 1903. The fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, also known as the Rebbe Rashab, he, was, he is the author of this text, summer of 1903. Ah, who doesn't remember the summer of 03? Okay, let's jump in to our text. Discourse 1, chapter 1. Already there's a footnote. You know it's going to be a scholarly text when it says Discourse 1, Chapter 1, and on Chapter 1, there's already literally a, uh, a footnote. Okay, here we go. A wells, and We start off with a quote. There's always a passport to get into the mystical discussion. You need an entry point through a verse, through Scripture. So here is your, your verse from the book of Yoel, from the book of Joel. A wellspring will go forth from the house of God, and shall water the valley of Shittim. A wellspring will go forth from the house of God and shall water the valley of Shittim. Okay, so what is the house of God? Probably the temple, right? The house of God sounds like the holy temple. And shall water the valley of Shittim. Well, that sounds like a geographical place. So it means that some, somehow a wellspring will go forth from the temple and water this valley. Now, it also sounds a bit metaphorical, right? It sounds like it's probably not literal that there's a, going to be a wellspring that emerges from the Holy Temple to water some valley, but it probably means some sort of inspiration or insight. Well, you guessed it. Take a look at footnote number two. Take a look at footnote number two. Literally, the verse is discussing an event that will take place after the coming of Mashiach, the Messiah. 
at the third, at the time of the third Beit Hamidrash, the third holy temple. So take a look at the complete verse. Again, I'm, I'm in, if you want to know where I am, let me make the, the text a little bit bigger. I am in the footnote, footnote two. Okay, remember, this is a scan, so it's, uh, the, the text is a little bit fuzzy, but I hope you can see it fairly well. So the complete verse reads, on that day, at the, Messi- at the Messianic time, on that day the mountain will drip with wine, the hills will flow with milk, all the channels of Judah will flow with water, and a wellspring shall, shall go forth from the house of God and shall water the valley of Shittim. See Ezekiel 47, that the water will emerge from under the threshold of the third temple and will flow eastward toward the Arabian Sea. Growing deeper as it goes, this river will sweeten the salty seawaters and in an area which was once a desert will produce all types of fruit trees along its banks. So it does seem actually that according to the prophecy of Ezekiel in the Messianic era, there's going to be some sort of sweetening of the salty waters and growth in places that have been, that have been here, heretofore or before that um, uh, barren, uh, not able to, uh, to, to grow fruit trees. Okay, so it seems like there is some sort of literal, literal meaning, but in our text, we're going to go immediately to a conceptual or metaphorical understanding of the verse and move away from the literal. So again, back to our verse. We talk about a wellspring. We talk about a house of God. And we talk about the valley of Shittim. We're going to focus first and foremost on Shittim. What does Shittim mean? So here we go. Next, next uh, paragraph. The Midrash Rabbah. Midrash Rabbah is one of the Midrashim. The Midrash Rabbah interprets Shittim in the sense of shtut, folly. Okay, these are all Hebrew words, by the way, as you probably guessed. Shittim, right? Shittim is related to the word shtut, which is folly. It me- shtut is, or in, in Ashkenazic pronunciation, shtus. Shtut means doing something foolish, doing something silly, doing something irrational. We call that shtut. Let's go deeper, though, in the analysis of the word shittim. Now, so that's what the Medrash says. Medrash says that shittim is related to shtut, which is folly. Now, next source, Sefer Hasharashim, which is a book on Hebrew grammar. So that book on the root of the word shita interprets shittim in the sense of turning aside. Trust me, this is all going to come together soon, but just follow, follow the, uh, the, the progression here. So there's another book that says, that what does shittim mean? Shittim means turning aside, like deviating from a path. Similar to a verse from the book of Numbers, which says, if his wife turns aside, which Rashi explains as turning from the ways of modesty. There's a discussion in Torah about about a woman who is suspected of infidelity in her marriage, etc. But the way that the Torah describes it in a very um, non, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A very respectful way, the Torah doesn't, use what we would call in Yiddish grub language. Not grub like in food, but grub like in a course. The Torah doesn't use coarse or vulgar language. The Torah uses refined language. That's the nature of Torah. So the Torah says, if his wife turns aside. Turns aside is a euphemism for turning away from the ways of modesty, so to speak. So turning aside means 
that there's a there's a, a way of you know decent behavior, if you will, and then there's turning aside from that. The point is that that the, in the Hebrew it's kisish kisish sista ishto. Ki sista ishto. Sista, which is similar to sista, which is similar to shtus or shitim, means turning aside. Likewise, Targum renders he turned to her, another verse from this from the book of Genesis, he turned to her as usita levata. For this reason, so what's the point? The point is that turning, that shitim, shtus, or sata also means turning. Let's, let's kind of round some things together. For this reason, the yetzer hara, the evil inclination, is called satan. I'm sure you've all heard of the word satan. Satan comes from the Hebrew word satan. Why is the evil force called satan? Since it turns a human being away from the proper path. What is the objective of satan? What is the objective of the evil inclination? It's to turn a person away from the straight and narrow path, from the correct way of living. And then, not only does the satan, or evil inclination, convince a person, help a person move away from the correct behavior, but it then proceeds to slander him in the heavenly court, turning toward prosecution. In other words, it pivots. It pivots from the, uh, the, the one egging the person on to the one prosecuting the person. I'm going to stop sharing just so I can see everybody and see your reactions to what I'm saying because I'd love to see you. So what we have here is a word that we're trying to analyze in Hebrew. We talk about a, a wellspring going forth from the house of God and it's watering the valley of Shittim. So now we're going to focus a deep dive on the Hebrew word Shittim. What does it mean? We have two opinions. Opinion number one is, it means doing something foolish. Folly. Shtut. Doing something irrational. The second meaning is turning away. Turning away from the straight and narrow path. In other words, the implication is, there is a path that one should be on. I don't mean a literal path, but a, you know, a metaphorical path. A, a, a space where somebody should be. Deviating from that path is captured in the word shitim or skisista ishto. Either there, there are multiple um, sources in, in, in scripture that use a form of this word that we're analyzing, shitim, that mean and, and the translation means that indicates that the meaning is turning aside. I want to focus on the last point that he said about the Satan, which is I think very interesting. So again, Satan. Maybe you picture um, like a red uh, character, right? A red character with like a pitchfork and like horns and whatever. Look, that's the way it's depicted in wherever. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the source of that is. But in Judaism. Cartoons. Cartoons, right. Bugs Bunny or whatever it is, right? But the, in, 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 this, in the source of Satan, well, I mean the source of conversation about Satan the source is Judaism, and Judaism explains that what is the Satan? It's not some like, you know, evil force that's out there with a pitchfork and a red thing and whatever. No, it's inside of us. Satan is our evil inclination. So 
And, and I know it's also been depicted as, you know, the two angels on the shoulders or whatever. Fine. It's not even on the shoulder. It's inside. It's that voice that says, hey, let's try this. That's not so healthy to try. That's not, so, that's, that's not in our best interest. Satan is the inner drive, the inner voice, whatever you want to call it, um, that turns, that tries, tries, and sometimes succeeds, that tries to turn us away. Again, that word turning away. Pivot from the rational, healthy path. Pivot to a negative path. But as I just said from the text a moment ago, not only does it pivot once, it then pivots itself. And it goes from your friend saying, hey, come join me in this, you know, stuff, to be like, hey, look what that guy did. The Satan is also the evil prosecuting angel on high. Whether it's, you know, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, whether it's after 120 years when we pass away, either way, the Satan is that prosecuting force that says, look what this guy did. Can you believe it? Who does that? That guy. And meanwhile, you're like, what? I thought we were in this together. You were the one that convinced me to do it. Yeah, so your friend, your friend Satan, has now pivoted, turned away from you, and now it's become your worst enemy, your, your, um, your adversary. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes? Satan is both the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination inside you, and it's also the prosecuting angel that is your worst nightmare. Not your, but is a person's worst. I'm not, you know, is a person's worst nightmare. Okay? That's Satan. So because of these two things, these two turning asides, if you will, turning a person aside, and then turning itself aside against the person, it's Satan is called Satan. But it's crazy, not crazy, it's yeah, well, I'll say crazy, crazy cool, in a certain way, to understand the etymology of the Hebrew word Satan. Satan, by the way, is written, you know what, let me pull up the Hebrew again. Let me share my screen. Not again, sorry, let me pull up the Hebrew for the first time. Take a look, take a look. Um, again, it's a little bit fuzzy, but I hope you can see, I'm going to highlight the word Satan. Here we go. Right there. Can you guys see that? Did it, did it get a little bit with a blue background? Yeah, okay. Satan. So it's spelled with the letter Sin, Tes, and Nun. Satan. Now, the, the letter Sin could also be a Shin. If you just change the dot from the left side to the right side, it changes it from an S sound to an SH sound in English, from a Satan to Shatan, which is very close to the word that, we're, that we started off our discussion with, which is shitim. Why can't I highlight that one? I don't know. Um, shitim, oh, I can't highlight that word. The one word that we're focusing on, I can't... Um, that's so weird. Some words are highlightable, some are not. Okay, either way, you know what, I'll draw a box around it. You know what, Can you, did you see the box that I just drew? Okay. Great. Shittim. Shittim and Satan, I know they sound different, but that's a vowelization. That's a dot on one side or the other. But at the core, they share the same Hebrew letters. Is what I'm saying, does what I'm saying make sense? The letter, the character, the physical drawing of the character is the same. And in Torah, when you don't have vowels, the, the letters are literally identical. Um, 
So the root of the words are the same. It's just a vowelization from a sh to a sa, from a sa to a sh. But either way, the etymological, the grammatical uh, roots are the same. What's the point? The point is when we have a verse that talks about the, the wellspring going forth and watering the Valley of Shittim, the Valley of Shittim is a euphemism for either foolishness or turning aside and pivoting. The two interpretations, in case you're wondering, are connected, which is what he proceeds to say in the next paragraph. Let's continue inside. I'm going to highlight where we are up to inside. Okay, right there. This is also why the Midrash that we quoted at the beginning interprets Shittim as folly. For folly is a turning away from the path of truth. In other words, the two interpretations of Shittim are related. One said Shittim means folly, doing something foolish. And the other one said it means turning away. Well, guess what doing something foolish is? Turning away from the rational path. Right? So doing the rational thing would be the straight and narrow. Deviating from that would be doing something foolish. So whether you say that shita means folly, or whether you say it means turning away from the path of rationale or rationality, it's the same thing. Doing something foolish is turning away from the rational and logical and intellectual way of doing things. Let's continue. Our sages, too, combine both concepts. In other words, not only is this a Kabbalistic combining of, you know, Hebrew grammar, the Talmud already discusses it. The Talmud in Tractate Sota on the aforementioned verse, if his wife turns aside, declares that, look at this, one does not commit a sin unless the spirit of folly enters him. Okay, let me describe again, and it's disrupted by, or it's interrupted by a page change here, but it's very important to understand this quote because this is really the core of this discourse. The entire core of, of our text is this line from the Talmud. One does not commit a sin unless the spirit of folly enters him. What that means is like this. If we were thinking with our right minds, we would never commit a sin. We would never do anything foolish. If we were thinking clearly, we wouldn't do something unhealthy. So why do we do unhealthy things? It's because we have the spirit of folly. Now, lest you think that, great, now I have an excuse. I didn't do it. The spirit of folly made me do it. Well, the spirit of folly is you and I. <laughs> That's us. That's our own mental gymnastics that explain to ourselves why this is not so bad or why this is actually okay. Sometimes we even tell ourselves that this is the best thing that we could have done. Joy. So you're saying this is our own evil inclination doing this? More than that. It's our own inclination that's now seduced our minds to get on board. So it's coming, you're, yes, it's initiating, originating from the evil inclination. But the evil inclination has got the ear of the brain, of the human mind, and our mind is like, yeah, this makes total sense. But if you really take a step back, you're like, what did I do? That was so silly. That was so foolish. That's why, and you and I can relate to this, you know, in our own experiences. How often, or, or 
I guess I'll ask it again, kind of the way I asked it before. Has it ever happened to you that you did something that you later regretted? Has it ever happened? Of course, right? Yeah. You ever did something that you regretted at some later point? Yes, you're human. I'm human, right? It all, it, every, you said something that you, sh- that, you re- that you shouldn't have said. You did something you didn't, that you shouldn't have done. You thought something you shouldn't have thought, right? And what happens later on? You tell yourself, oh, hey, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Here's the answer. You, in the moment, you were thinking something that was foolish. You were thinking something that was... It, what, there wasn't... Not yet. There wasn't an absence of logic behind it. There was logic. But the logic was... In Yiddish, we call it krum. Krum means crooked. It was a crooked logic, right? It's like when you're trying to explain something to yourself or to someone else, you're trying, you know, you're trying to explain why this thing that makes no sense makes sense. It's like, give you an example. It's like the guy... It's like the guy who goes to the tailor to make him a suit. You know, back in the day, you couldn't buy a suit off the rack. There were no, no such things as, as, as department stores. Right? So you went to a tailor and you got a suit. Depending on how much money you had, dictated the, the quality of the tailor that you could go to. So this fellow saved up some money. Didn't have a lot of money. We saved up some money. He went to a tailor. Wasn't the best tailor in the, ta- in the town, but, you know, it's, it, well, he was a tailor nonetheless. He goes to the tailor. And commissions a suit, measures him, you know, he does the whole thing, measures him, says, come back in a few weeks, comes back, and he hands him the jacket to try on. Nice. Okay. Tries in the jacket, gives him the pants to try on, tries in the pants, comes out of the fitting room or whatever it was, the dressing room, and, uh, and the suit doesn't fit. The suit does, it's like one sleeve is shorter than the other and one pant leg is short. That one's going this way, one's going that way. The whole thing is wrong. He comes out and he says, What's, um, what, what kind of suit is this? The, the, the whole thing is off. This sleeve is here and this sleeve is there. Like, and the, the whole thing doesn't work. So the tailor says to him, you're wearing it wrong. You have to move your hand like this and this hand like that and this leg you have to stick out and then it'll look fine. In other words, you have to contort to make the suit fit. How often in life do we do the same thing? Right? There's a certain behavior, a certain objective that we're trying to get to. And in order to get there, we do the mental gymnastics, right? We do the contortion to make it somehow palatable in our heads that we could do such a thing. So we tell ourselves, yeah, this is okay, or it's not so bad, or it's good, or I deserve it, or they deserve it, or whatever it is. I don't want to go through all of the rationales because literally this book is going to go through one by one the stories we tell ourselves to get us past the intellectual barrier of that makes no sense, right? To get us past that barrier of that's a terrible idea, right? How do we get past that? We tell ourselves a story. What those stories are is the subject of, of this very long discourse. Um, but all of it constitutes, in a general sense, a contortion. And that's what we're talking about right at the beginning of this text. All of the mistakes that we make, all of the foolish, folly behaviors that we do are a product of turning away from rational thinking and allowing this spirit of folly to take over. Again, this is not intended to say you can plead spirit of folly. I didn't do it. It was the spirit of folly that made me do it. No, that defense doesn't work. 
You and I, we are the spirit of folly. Own it, right? We are the spirit of folly. Yes, it's the evil inclination, but you and I got on board and got our minds behind it and then did it with our free choice. So no, no deflecting blame here. But what the point of the Talmud is, and this is really powerful, is simply this. Everyone, no matter what we've done, no matter what mistakes we've done, we have the ability to not make that mistake by catching ourselves in those moments of contortion thinking. Does that make sense what I just said? We have the ability to pull back the reins and stop the train wreck from happening within ourselves by simply thinking rationally. And the key to that is knowing the patterns of the irrational thoughts. Knowing what those sound like so that we're like, so that we tell ourselves, wait a second, I know where that's coming from. That's my spirit of folly. That's my irrational thought process kicking in. Let me stop that and redirect to a rational thought process. I'm using rational and irrational for healthy and unhealthy. And by the way, this could be physically healthy or unhealthy, spiritually healthy or unhealthy. The the main conversation in in this text, as you can imagine, a Kabbalistic text, is going to be spiritual healthy versus spiritually unhealthy behavior. But it will also speak about physically healthy and unhealthy behavior as well. They're all related. It's the same dynamic, right? You and I know that this is healthy and that's unhealthy. So why sometimes do we choose the unhealthy behavior? Because we told ourselves in the moment that it wasn't so bad. Or we told ourselves just this one time. Or we to- again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever the st- we had to get ourselves past the barrier of, wait, I can't do that. How do we get ourselves past the barrier? We thought our way through it. So catch it. We have to, so the point of this text is to recognize those patterns, to catch ourselves, and to step back from that push through. So the Talmud says, no one would ever commit a sin without this spirit of folly, without the irrational thought, which is very powerful. You know what that means? Sin, I don't even like the word sin because that, that makes it like sound like something else. Unhealthy behavior is not, is not the entire, it's not entirely emotional or instinctual or instinctive. See, you and I might think that, no, no, people don't think when they act irrationally. They just act irrationally. What we're saying based on Kabbalah is, no, 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 we are thinking, we're thinking irrationally. You see, you see the difference there? We would th- normally think that we're not thinking when we're doing something unhealthy. But Kabbalah is telling us, this text will tell us, we are thinking. But we're thinking in an irrational way. And so what we need to do is not start thinking, but st- rather start thinking in a rational way. And the moment we think rationally, clear, clear-minded, clear vision, the moment we think, you know, with our eyes right in front of us, with clarity, is the moment that we will pull back from the negative choices. So the mind is always leading the action. The mind is always in the front at the lead, paving the way for whatever we're going to do following the mind's lead. 
That's why it's so important that we're thinking clearly and that we're not thinking in a way that's contorted, like the guy wearing this, like the tailor who's like, yeah, you gotta wear the suit like this and then it, then, then it will all make sense. Okay, does that make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay. Let's jump back into the text. This is, uh, it, it's, it's really powerful. And this is just kind of the, the intro within the text. Here we go. Top of 28. This is right here. It is clear. First line on 28. It is clear then that turning away and folly are, are one thing. A turning aside from the way of truth and goodness. And then he says, see Marsha. The Marsha is a Talmud, a commentary. See Marsha in his commentary on the above statement. What, which above statement? The statement of the Talmud that no one would ever commit a sin without the, the spirit of folly. Spirit of folly means without the rationalization. If we weren't rationalizing, we would make good choices. That's, that's the premise. Here we go. So now the question is, what leads to the rationalizations? And this is what we will cover in this text. Oh, I, I also want to mention something about the structure of this text. This text is written so clearly for a mystical text. It's written with such great examples embedded in the text that we're going to spend a lot more time inside the text than outside the text. We usually spend a lot of time outside the text and then do a little bit inside. In this, in this, um, in this series, we're going, to, we're going to have it much more balanced, maybe even primarily inside the text, just because the text does such a great job. Again, I'm not saying the other ones don't, but the other ones are a little bit more cryptic. This one is, was written literally for, and the author himself said that he's writing this for everyone to understand and to be able to appreciate and to be able to apply it to their own lives. So it's written from the, on an intentional level to speak to everyone. Knows without like vast Kabbalistic experience necessarily. All right, back inside. Okay, so he asked the question here. So we must understand, so what, what brings man, the human being, to violate the ways of Torah and to be drawn after his heart's desires, indulging in physical delights? In other words, what is it, this paragraph means, so what is it that actually allows a person or, or helps a person rationalize negative, unhealthy, destructive, self-destructive behaviors? Again, I told you that the, the immediate context of this text is going to be spiritual activity, but it, it affects everything, including, including physical um, uh, well-being as well. Let's jump in. This violation, quote-unquote violation, includes even indulgence in the permissible. When he seeks, and again, he's using the, the, the masculine gender. It's not only, it's not specifically, in Hebrew you choose one essentially because there's either masculine or feminine, and the masculine is usually the, the more, although it's, all, it's masculine, but it's also the more general of the two. So that's why it's a he, but it means the person. So the violation includes even indulgence in the permissible. When the person seeks pleasure and enjoyments and luxuries beyond the necessities of living. What he's saying here is that pleasure seeking is also considered to be turning aside from a spiritually healthy path. As he says right here, this too is inconsistent with Torah ways. <clears throat> For man is required 
based on the Torah, to, quote, sanctify himself in what is permitted to him. What does that mean, to sanctify himself in what is permitted to him? This is a verse. It's based on a verse in Leviticus. The verse says, be holy. Kedoshim, tihiyu, be holy. What does it mean to be holy? What do I do, levitate, meditate? Like, what, 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 what do I need to do to be holy? So, the commentaries explain, it means sanctify yourself in what is permitted to you. In other words, even the stuff that's permitted, you don't need to do. The chinuch, which is one of the works that goes through and enumerates all 613 mitzvot of the Torah, the chinuch describes this as a biblical commandment, biblical commandment, and Tanya chapter 30 agrees. Let me stop sharing for a moment and elaborate on what we just said. So again, the verse in Leviticus says, be holy. That sounds very vague, to which our sages say, here's what it means to be holy. It means separate yourself. Holiness is separation. Separate yourself from the things, even the things that are permitted. In other words, we're not talking about something that's not kosher, whatever that means. But even the things that are kosher, don't indulge in the kosher. So for example, you're at a barbecue. I'm going to give the lowest hanging fruit example possible. You're at a barbecue, and they're grilling steaks. How many steaks do you go for? It's not only about, it's not, it's not a question of physical health and red meat or whatever it is. It's a question of physical indulgence. How materialistic in Yiddish, I think I used this word already today, how grub are we? How hedonistic, materialistic, how into the food are we? As opposed to understanding it as something we need to do, something that we need as fuel to keep us going. This is, again, a very simple example, a very easy example to give about this mitzvah, which according to some, the chinuch, sefer chinuch, and tanya is a biblical mitzvah. By the way, let me explain what that means according to some, it's a biblical mitzvah. How do we not know if it is? Okay. We know by tradition that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. But the Torah doesn't say, number one, <laughs> number two. The Torah doesn't number them for us. The Torah says a lot of things. Spoiler alert, the Torah, is t the Torah says more than 613 things. So you have to somehow figure out what's officially a mitzvah, what's a subcategory of the mitzvah. In other words, what are the, what, what's the core mitzvah, what's a subcategory of a mitzvah, what's included in, in something else. So depending on who you ask, this idea of Kadesh Asmachabamutullah, sanctifying ourselves in what's permitted, either is a mitzvah or it's not a mitzvah. But it's not clear if it's a biblical commandment or a rabbinic commandment. In other words, is it a biblical commandment or is it rabbinically understood from the Torah's values, but it's not actually a biblical commandment? So he said in the text, according to the Sefer Achinuch, one of the codifiers, one of the you know, um, enumerators of the 613 commandments, according to him, it is one of the 613. And according to Tanya, which is the main Hasidic, Chabad Hasidic work, it is one of the 613. Donna, go ahead. Wait, wait, don't forget to unmute yourself. Thank you. Um, so for the first steak, are we permitted to just take pleasure in that one steak? Uh, I, listen, here's, here's my disclaimer. I'm not going to sit here Sunday morning and tell you don't enjoy steak. 
I mean, I could, but why? But that's not that's not my agenda. I'm I'm just using that as an example. The idea here is, I'll give you the Hasidic. There's an old Hasidic statement. The translation is because I don't remember the exact Yiddish words in the original. It's really beautiful in the original, but the translation is, "What we can't, we certainly can't, and what we can, we don't need." That's that's the the the, the statement. You with me? What's, what's forbidden is forbidden. And what's permitted, we also don't need. In other words, there is a value in saying, you know, I don't, I don't need to indulge. What's the problem with indulgence? He's going to soon tell, uh, tell us inside what the problem with indulgence is. In, in, in permitted things, he's saying. What's the problem with If it's permitted, if it's kosher, so what's the problem? Because if it's, if it's a material pleasure, it quickly leads to us becoming, and I'm going to use a strong word here, addicted to material pleasures, which then conditions us to seek more and more material pleasures and push the boundaries of those permitted pleasures. And soon, soon, it bleeds over into another category, which we would call forbidden. So there's, there's, that's the slippery slope argument, right? But even without that, like this is going to lead to that, even without that argument, the, the general question is, what should our focus and what should our pleasure lie in? Should it be in steak? And again, I'm not picking on steak, although I am. It sounds like I am, but I'm not actually. I'm just using it as an example, right? What should our pleasure be in? Steak or doing a mitzvah? Steak or davening? Steak or chesed, doing, doing a favor for someone else. What should we be thinking about and, and salivating over, so to speak? Right? I mean, what, what, where, should our, where should our heads be? Where should our hearts be? Where should our excitement be? What should get us going? How often do we spend our day? Again, I, I know I'm literally going for the lowest hanging fruit. Right? But this is, and Kabbalah does use this example about food. Right? What do we spend so much of our day thinking about? Right? What's for breakfast? What's for lunch? What's for right? We're always thinking about, not always, but oftentimes we're thinking about, you know, the next thing we're gonna eat. How often do we think about the spiritual stuff in the same way? Right? Like when's oh I can't wait till I have a chance to do the next mitzvah. I can't wait till I have the chance to, to help someone else out or to daven or to halavai, if only that was our thought process. It would be amazing. And so the point is, well, how does that happen? It happens by just in our own minds, cutting back on the attention that we give that stuff and giving a little bit more value and attention to the holies, to the spiritual stuff. So this, it's very hard to quantify this mitzvah, which is why according to some, it's not a biblical commandment because how do you, how do you quantify it? It's like a, it's like a general ethos. It's like a general like, way of living. Sanctify yourself. In other words, abstain. That's a good word. Abstain even from the permissible. Just because you're allowed doesn't mean you need it. By the way, by the way, you should know that even in modern wellness, this is a truth. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, Right? everything you can, you're supposed to do, right? Again, forget the forbidden, but even the permissible, just because you can and it's, and it's okay, 
doesn't mean that you should. That's this value. So it's hard to quantify. You know, no one can tell anybody else exactly what this means. It's all a judgment that we make for ourselves. You know, can I sort of draw a line a little bit further back than where the absolute red line is? Right? There's a red line which demarcates kosher, unkosher. I don't only mean literally with food, but I mean like permitted, forbidden. There's there's a line there, right? Can I, for myself, for myself, can I step back a little bit and draw my own line, draw my own line, and say, you know what, I could, this is still okay, but you know what, I'm going to hold back. Um, yeah, you can go. Okay, so, so can we draw a line? for ourselves. That's what this mitzvah is, according to the Chinuch, according to Tanya, according to, to many authorities, this is what this biblical mitzvah is. It's not just, and, that, and the reason why it's important is, if it's a biblical mitzvah, then that means it's, it's, it's very important. It's not just an ethical, spiritual idea. Like, it's a, good, it's a good practice to do this. According to this way of thinking that he's quoting here, it's a biblical mitzvah, like Rosh Hashanah, like Matzah and Passover, like um, fasting in Yom Kippur, is this idea of drawing a line. And so is it the first stake or the second stake? Is it half a stake or three-quarters of a stake? That's what I'm saying. There's no one that's going to be able to tell you or me what exactly that means, but for us, it's knowing what is, you know, what, what, what would be, you know, needed, and then what is considered to be indulgent beyond what's needed. And this is not talking about forbidden stuff. This is still within the realm of the, of the permissible. So I have to, you know, I'm just thinking about this. I may, I may have mentioned this recently. I don't know if I did at a class about my grandfather. May he be well. Um, so my grandfather, and I, 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 I never saw him. And some, many of you have met my grandfather, right? You've seen him. His visits. So, I, it's a it's it's a value that that is that I've I've rarely seen in people. To be honest, I've never seen. I guess I've never been around somebody that's that's consistently done this. Never, when it comes, literally getting back to our example of food, could be the best. Could be my potato kugel. He'll be over my potato kugel, which. You know, you can knock down a half a tray of that single-handedly, right? What all, what, he will always take just a little bit of, of, just a little sample of everything. You know, how much do you want? Just give me a little taste of everything. Self-control, like self-control and, and, and not the indulgence. It's not only a healthy value, it's a Jewish value. It's, according to many, it's a biblical value. And again, I know I'm only speaking about food, but it's true in every area. It's true in every area of life. Just because it's kosher doesn't mean that we should indulge in it. To cut back whatever it is. It's true in, 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 in all sorts of areas. Kadesh Asmach So let me check out the chat. Ah. 
Adam is asking a great question. So should a person avoid steak and eat tofu instead? Excellent question. Everyone, yes, yes. It is ambiguous and it's not well defined. And that's where we come in. We define it, right? We define it on our own as far as knowing within the permissible which areas we, we feel like that, that's, that would be me indulging and this is me staying within a, uh, one cookie, not four, right? That's another example. I, wh- I don't want this only to be about food because to be honest, it's, um, it's so much more than just food. Food is the easiest example to talk about. It's, it's literally the easiest example to talk about because number one, we're all eating, right? It's something we're all doing. And it's something that, I, you know, on some level we all, Consider how much Rambam writes famously that one should eat, I forget the exact ratio, one should never eat until they're full. One should always eat and stop eating before they're full. Because once we feel that we're full, it means that we've eaten already too much. Whatever. But again, these are all, the food is the easy example, but it's true in every area of life. It's true in indulging in conversations, even if they're permitted, but that are a little bit juicy or whatever. It's it's true in every area of life. It's about kind of creating boundaries to be a disciplined person that has the ability to say, you know what, here's my personal boundary. Here's my personal border. I could go further, but I'm going to rein it in right over here. Let's Let's get back to the text to see where he's going with this. Because this is such a, such a great topic, but where, where are we going with this? He's trying to explain, he says, we need to understand what makes a person do foolish things, right? And, and, and indulge in things that are unhealthy. He says, this could even be kosher things, permitted things, right? Let's say he elaborates on this in the last paragraph right here. Okay, we did everything until now, and we did everything until here. We're up to this paragraph, Torah. Torah permits only what life demands. And even in this, man's intention should not be the physical delight in the food, for example, but for the purpose of being able to serve his creator with the vigor derived from that food, with the energy, vigor energy derived from that food. Similarly, man's intention, the human being's intention in whatever he does should be, quote, for the sake of heaven. However, when man's intention is his self-gratification, and even more so when it is pure luxury, pure luxury is, I don't know if that's an English phrase, when it's purely, purely indulgent, then his pursuit of such pleasure is clearly contrary to Torah's teaching. To Torah teaching. And for that moment, it is... This is a little bit hard. Absolute evil as we find in Tanya. What he's saying here is a person could take something that's kosher and make it into a negative experience when it becomes about physical indulgence. So the classic example, getting back to food, is food. Why, do, why are we eating food and what's the kavana? what's the intention behind it? Is the intention that I need fuel to do the next good thing, do the next mitzvah, or is it as an end unto itself. I'm eating to eat. 
I'm eating because I enjoy it. So according to Tanya, according to Chassidus, that is a deviation from the way that a person should spiritually live. A person should live in a way of, the example that I've given before is, it's like filling up your car with gasoline, right? You're driving and that, that light flashes. Maybe you don't wait for the light. I usually wait for the light, whatever. Don't judge me, right? So the light flashes and it says low fuel, right? So what do you do? I got 20 miles. No, I'm kidding. So what do you do? <laughs> Sometimes. So what do you do? Um, you, at some point, at some point, you pull into a gas station. And it's, it's a very practical, utilitarian experience. You go there, you put in your card, you type in your PIN number or whatever it is, you put in the thing, you, you choose your grade of gasoline, and you fill up your tank. And that's it. You know, if you're lucky, you have a little TV screen with a little bit of a recap and something. It plays you a song and a dance over there to keep you entertained, and you're done. And then you go, you keep on going. Why did you stop? I've used this example before many times. You probably heard me say it. When was the last time you, po you, po you, you posed for a selfie with your, with your gasoline pumping? Check this out. I got the 93. I mean, no one does that, right? A selfie with, because it's, it's not about the experience. It's about filling up to move on. It's very much understood as a means to an end. You're filling up in order to keep on driving. You're not filling up for the sake of filling up. But for some reason, when it comes to food, we do fill up for the sake of filling up. And we forget that the entire f human fueling experience is also entirely about being ha having the energy to do the next good thing. So what's my point? And what's the point of the text? The point is that the moment it becomes about the material experience and not about a higher experience, we have, and this, uh, this is an important word that I'm using, we've degraded the food, we've degraded ourselves, and we've degraded the experience. In other words, the two parties, the person and the food, are being lowered, and the experience of the interaction between the person and the food is also being lowered from where it could have been. And temporarily, it says in Tanya, that experience descends into the realm of klipa. Klipa means unholiness. Now, it's redeemable. How is it redeemable? The next time you study Torah with that energy, you've now reclaimed it. But for the moment, your intention, which was not higher but lower, if, sorry, if it was not higher but lower, that plunged the experience for the moment, temporarily, into a, the realm of klipa, of unholiness, until such later time that you do use the energy to study Torah or to do a mitzvah or to pray or whatever, something positive, something spiritual, that reclaims the experience. Does anything that I just said make sense? Yes? Okay. Now, why is it considered degrading? Because a human being shouldn't be running after the food. We should be fueling up to do human things. Human being, has a, human being is not an animal. Human being is not a plant. Human being is not a rock. A human being is not a, is, is not a human. We, you and I can do things that other forms of life cannot do. So to neglect that opportunity and to run after a, a lowly experience with our heads down, like a cow in the field, you know, munching on grass. And again, I'm not trying to, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be, to be, to be harsh. I'm just saying, for a human being to, to, to go down to the experience, as opposed to elevating it, is a degradation. 
to the potential. And it's degrading the food because the food is being, the food is, the intention, the divine intention of the food is to be fuel for human spiritual behavior. But it's being used, by contrast, for a human being to self-indulge. So the food is being degraded from its purpose. The human being is self-degrading from his or her purpose. And the experience is a degrading experience because it's not, it's not the one that, it's, that, that, that it could be. That's why he says, for the moment, it descends, getting back inside to the text, he says, for the moment, temporarily, for that moment, it is absolute evil. Evil is a harsh term. It means it's in the realm of klipa. It's in the realm of, un- I'm going to use the word unholiness. It's an unholy experience. Until such time, the big, don't worry, it gets better. Until, but the moment you use the energy from that food, later on for something positive, it all lifts up. So it's not irredeemable. It will get to a better place. But for the moment, we, we, we sank down to a level that we really didn't need to if we were thinking in a clear fashion. So all of this constitutes one form of indulgence and what we would call a foolishness, folly, right? What is folly? Folly is a human being running after physical, physical stuff as opposed to using it for a higher purpose. So let's continue inside. Page 30. So he asked the big question. So what causes man, again, not male or female, what causes the human being to be attracted to bodily desires and pleasures for their own sake, not for a higher purpose, but for their own sake, indulging in them? The answer is, it is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, persuading him describing how desirable the pleasure is and how attractive it is. This is what happened at the sin of the tree of knowledge. It's an old story. He says it's the first story, right? The woman saw, Eve saw, that the tree was good to eat and that it was desirable to the eye. So she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband Adam with her, and he ate. In other words, the beginning of indulgence into lower pleasures is... The fact that it looks to us as good and pleasing and attractive. The eye sees, we like how it looks, it looks great, and, and, and the rest of us follows. I want to share with you an insight on the Shema. In the Shema we say, what's the, what's the phrase in the Shema? Oh, it says, Velosa Suru. You might know this phrase in Hebrew, perhaps. I'll, I'll translate it also. It says, Velosasur achre levavchem. Thank you, Nasan. Vachre nechem. There we go. It says, do not go astray. Do not be led astray after levavchem, after your heart, and after your eyes. And the commentaries, the biblical commentaries say, what's the heart and eyes? What is that? I think even Rashi quotes it right there on the verse in Deuteronomy. He says, Here's how it works. The eye sees, and then the heart desires. So what happened with Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden? The first sin. What happened? They couldn't hold themselves back. Now, just one second. That wasn't indulgent in an extra steak. That was kosher. That was forbidden. So let's be very clear here. That was worse, way worse, than what we're talking about here. 
which is, you know, an extra, you know, whatever, this, that, or the other. Or, or when we're eating, we're not having in mind that it's for the energy that we can do for a mitzvah, but it's self-indulgent. It's just merely for the pleasure of the eating experience, which can then be reclaimed, but in the moment is, is a degrading experience for the soul. That was worse. That was literally eating the one tree, the fruit of the tree, the one tree that God said, do not touch. So we're not equating, right, this, you know, not having that line for ourselves with Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit, right? Obviously. But what we are saying is that how did that happen? It happened because they told themselves, oh, that looks good. They saw that it looked good. It was attractive or pleasing to the eye, and they ate. First Eve and then Adam. But they were both in the, on the, in the same boat on the same page. It looked good. They got excited about it, and they ate it. But wait, didn't they know it was forbidden? Okay, so here's a spoiler alert. You and I, we're the same way, right? We do things all the time that we know are not good, or we know are wrong, or we know are unhealthy, whether spiritually or physically, because we get excited about it. Because we, we got excited by the look or by the sound or by the taste or whatever it was. We got excited and we weren't thinking clearly. That's going to be the first folly. The first folly. And again, let me explain what I mean by folly. Folly means doing something foolish, which we said is fueled by a distorted rationalization. I asked at the beginning of the class, I even wrote it down for myself, if we're so smart, why do we do such foolish things? And the answer is, because we're so smart, we can do foolish things because we tell ourselves, we, we have the stories but that, that, make it, that make us okay with doing that. What's the first story we tell ourselves? The first story is, oh, that looks really good. That's a story. That's a story. Because if we told ourselves, oh, that doesn't look good at all, we wouldn't do it. If Adam and, I'm going to say that again, using the example of Adam and Eve, if Adam and Eve looked at the tree and said, oh, that's, 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 God doesn't want me to eat that tree. I don't like, that, that tree doesn't look good. That tree is, is, that's off limits entirely. That's not a good looking tree. If, if for a moment they said that, not for a moment, if they, if they said that, if they believe that, they wouldn't have eaten from the tree. The way they allowed themselves to eat from the tree is because they told themselves the story. Oh, this is a good-looking tree. That's up here. They saw it. They interpreted it in their heads as good. And once they, they, they desired it in the mind, the rest is history. I, God said, don't. Well, you and I know our workarounds for that. We all, we all have workarounds for that. Yeah, God says it's good. Yeah, my doctor says it's, sorry. Yeah, God says it's no good. Yeah, my doctor says it's no good. Yeah, my kids say it's not good. Yeah, I say it's not good. All right, we have a workaround for that. But the workaround, the, the premise of the workaround is it has to be good in our own heads. Or in the moment, we have to think that it's good or we think that we want it in that moment. Otherwise, if we don't want it, then of course we're not going to do it, right? It all starts with the, that synapse, that, that, that mental, that, 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 that's, that, that brain connection, oh, this equals good. That's the first connection that leads us into the negative behavior. This equals good. So the first step is if we could break that, right? 
then we might avoid the negative behavior. Or even the indulgence in the, in, in, in the permitted, if we could break that, oh, this is good, and say, well, this is not good, then we would avoid a lot of this stuff. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Okay, and that's where we're headed with this. Um, I saw in the chat, let me go back to the chat for a second, about, um, let's see, um, indulgence, oh, we, uh, so festival and holiday meals, oh, and I see wine is mentioned. Okay, so a few things about that. Very important, very important conversation. So there's, there's two things. There's two subjects that came in through the chat. One is, um, that, or that I want to focus on. So one is regarding um, Shabbat or holidays when it is a mitzvah to indulge or to eat meals and food, and maybe even to indulge on some level, which we'll speak about in a second. I'm going to address that. The second one is what about alcohol? So let's deal with both. Both are very important topics. Number one, on Shabbat, there is a mitzvah as part of Shabbat to have oneg, oneg Shabbat, which means pleasure on Shabbat. And the way, it's, the way it's understood and codified in halacha in Jewish law is that it means not only pleasure for the soul on Shabbat, but also pleasure for the body. And that includes eating a delicious meal. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily eating every kugel and all the kugels. But it does mean eating enjoyable food. So, and you have to understand like historical context also. Historically, right, human beings have never lived, at least for many of us, have never lived as well as we live today. That's just the, the reality of it. So back in the day, it was, you know, instead of eating, you know, very, very simple things, it's like have meat once a week. That's why you find in Halacha talks about eating meat on Shabbat because no one ate meat during the week, right? Who ate meat? So meat was considered a luxury or certain fish was a luxury. So on Shabbat, treat yourself to something nice. Why? So that it feels special, so that you're having extra enjoyment. Doesn't mean to make, you know, to, you know, to indulge. It doesn't mean to indulge. It just means to, to, have, to, to have an enjoyable Shabbat with enjoyable food. But that enjoyable food becomes a mitzvah because it's not about the food. It's about experiencing joy on Shabbat. Does that make sense what I just said? In other words, that is actually a mitzvah. It's part of the mitzvah. Part of enjoying Shabbat is, right, it's elevating. Oh, in other words, in other words, to, say, to, say, to use the same language that I said before, just like during the week, intentional spiritual eating would mean that I'm eating like I'm filling up my car with gas, with the intention. It doesn't have to be so bland, by the way. It doesn't have to taste like gasoline, God forbid. But what it means is that I'm mindful as I'm eating that this is essentially fuel for the next great thing. So I'm enjoying the eating in the sense that I'm enjoying having the energy to do the next great thing. So that, that's where my pleasure really is in eating. On Shabbat, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. On Shabbat, we do focus on a little bit more on the tastes and on the experience and on the physical part of it because that too is part of the enjoyment of Shabbat. But then that becomes the mitzvah, or not becomes, that is part of the mitzvah because it's a mitzvah. Eating on Shabbat for the sake of heaven means to also enjoy it on Shabbat. In the week, it's eating for the sake of heaven means eating for the energy. So it's a little bit of a different thing. And the same thing would be true for, for holidays as well. By the way, I should mention, this is super parenthetical, but I just thought of it. This Friday, 
is a very unique day. It's Asara Beteves, it's the 10th day of Teves, and it's a Jewish fast day. But it's very unique that this fast day should fall out on a Friday. We break our fast with Kiddush. I'm just giving you a heads up on the calendar. It's very, very unique. It, most years, this falls out very rarely, this type of calendar arrangement. Literally, it's a fast day. It begins in the morning, Friday morning at, at daybreak, and it ends at sundown, which is when Shabbat begins, and you essentially break your fast with the Shabbat meal. So just, again, it's not related to our conversation. I mean, exactly, but it's just, I was thinking about it, Shabbat and eating and enjoying and whatever. I thought to mention. Back to our story. The question is about wine. So wine, so first of all, number one, everyone has to know themselves. This is the most important thing. Everyone has to know themselves and everyone has to know whether or not wine is healthy or unhealthy. Healthy in, on any level or un, unhealthy on every level or in moderation. Everyone is different. So number one, know thyself. Wine, kosher wine or alcohol, is not fundamentally trafe. It's not fundamentally you know, forbidden. But again, if, if, if for somebody it's a challenge or for somebody it's, it's unhealthy, then 100% it's unhealthy. So that's the overall, the overarching disclaimer. Now, why is it that on Shabbat we use wine, you know, Kiddush, by the way, if it's unhealthy, then use grape juice or use something else. But why is it traditionally that it's associated with Shabbat and holidays with wine or simchas, celebrations, weddings and a brit milah, whatever it is, why is it always associated with wine? So, and, and I think somebody mentioned this in the chat, wine is associated with joy. Wine is associated with joy. And just like I said about the food that we're supposed to enjoy, the food on Shabbat, we're also supposed to so just like we eat food on Shabbat as part of the, 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 the observance of enjoying Shabbat, the same thing would be with the wine. But again, if it's unhealthy for somebody, then we're not supposed to drink the wine. Then it becomes a mitzvah to abstain from that and, and find an alternative. But in general, the wine, if you know, done in obviously moderation, is something that could be part of the joy. Wine, you know, yayin ubasar, wine and meat. If somebody doesn't like meat, should they force themselves to have meat on Shabbat? No, because you're supposed to enjoy it. If somebody can drink wine or doesn't like wine, should they force themselves? No, right? You gotta, you have to, um, oh, is there a specific word in Kabbalah about balance and moderation? That's a good question. I would say Kedusha, holiness. Holiness means balance and moderation. Holiness, the, the, the definition of the word holy, in, 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 at least according to Kabbalah, is stepping back from being all in, is, is, is able to create that self-limitation so that we're not indulging, so that we are moderating. You should know Maimonides, Rambam, in his works on, on uh, psychological and, and, and physical health, talks very much about eating in moderation, as I mentioned before, not to eat to the point where we're totally full, whatever, just different things about moderation, how to eat, and, and specifically which, you know, uh, healthy and, and, and health and wellness, yeah, and Danielle's writing, there's spheres also. Yeah, teferet would be chesed gvur, teferet. Teferet is harmony, beauty, and it's kind of that, that uh, thanks for mentioning that, Danielle. It's also that, um, the balance. Teferet would be probably the classic um, spiritual energy, sphere, a Kabbalistic um, energy that denotes the idea of balance. So 
so what so what what did we do today? And I hope that that you know that covers a lot of the stuff that came up in the chat. Maybe not all of it, but but hopefully most of it. So what did we talk about today? So we we started off. I'm just going to do a quick recap, and then we're going to close it out. We started off by setting a verse from the book of Joel or Joel that talks about a wellspring emanating from the house of God and watering the valley of Shittim. A very you know. Um, magical sounding text you picture like art like some mountain and a house of god on top and like this wellspring flowing down into the valley but what does it actually mean for you and i so let's understand what this valley of shittim is what is shittim right shittim means either foolishness foolish behavior or deviating from the path of rationality, which is pretty much the same thing. So doing something foolish is deviating from a rational way of thinking. But that's really the big idea at the beginning of this text, that every time we do something foolish, every time we make a mistake or do something that we shouldn't have done, it constitutes an act of our, our mind deviating from the, the straight and narrow. In other words, Somehow, we got ourselves into a thought process that said, this is okay. Just like Adam and Eve that said, yeah, this looks good. God said it's not good. Yeah, but to us it looks good. So that was a rationalization to allow them to get past the hurdle of knowing that it's wrong. They said, yeah, but it looks really good. So I really need to do it. I need it. It looks so good. It's got to be good, right? If it looks good, it has to be good. That was their rationalization to get them over, to get them over the hump. And he said the same thing is true with us even in the realm of permissible, let alone the forbidden, but even in the realm of the permissible, we can rationalize ourselves into indulgent behavior or we can rationalize ourselves out of it. So this text, as it unfolds, this is just the opening. So this is just literally the first few paragraphs of a very, an incredible text. The core is understanding what, what's the bug in the human mind that allows us to do things that are unhealthy. What's the bug in the head? And it's not a bug. It's just, it's just ways of thinking. The more we're aware of it, the more we catch ourselves and step back. The first bug is, it looks really good. It looks good. So let's, we're going to address that further next week. All right, thank you for joining me for Kabbalah and Coffee. I should mention that today is, again, Hey Teves. Hey Teves, the fifth day of Teves. Buy a Jewish book today. It's a very special day for books. Um, as I mentioned at the opening, and this week. Oh, tonight is the Jewish Book Club. For those of you that are joining us for that, we have our title is The Outskirts of Hope, a memoir of the 1960s Deep South, a Jewish family from Boston who moves into Mississippi to open up a medical clinic and deals with racism, etc. So it's a powerful book. Um, if you're part of the book club, great. If not, you can still join, by the way. You can find the, the link on and just listen to the conversation. But, and join us for subsequent titles. We'll put it out there um, after tonight. So take a look for that. We do it once a month. Jewish Book Club. It's really a lot of fun. Um, what else should I mention? Tomorrow night is Rosh Chodesh Society. It's all about joy. A co it's the, 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 the course is titled Code to Joy. Tomorrow we talk about how having a healthy self-concept can lead to, can help increase our inner happiness and joy. So that's tomorrow night. So if you want that, you can take a look. If you want to join that, um, it's for women only, but if you want to join that, um, take a look on the website and or contact me and we'll get you in on that. And what else is going on this week? We have Thursday, which is a big day, December 24th, which is Nittelnacht, which 
take a look at your email for some of that. We may do a Chinese dinner situation for that, but take a look. And then at, at home, you know, take, take, home, take out Chinese dinner. December 25th is Friday, and that's also Jewish fast day. It happens to coincide in the Jewish calendar this year. And again, it's, uh, it's broken by Shabbat. All right, that's a review of the week. Have a wonderful week, Shavuot Tov. It's great to see you all. Great to study together. Take care. Shavuot Tov. Bye, everybody. Shavuot Tov. Take care. No.